Welcome to the Grace Harbor Church Sermon Podcast. Grace Harbor Church is located in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. For more information, visit our website at ghokc.com. Hey, let's stay standing and read in our reading of God's Word together today. We're in Matthew chapter 5, uh, verses 1 through 3. And so if you don't have a Bible... Uh, what we re- highly encourage you to do is grab one of the Bibles in front of you um, in the chair or use a device. No judgment. If anybody judges you around, uh, that's that, you know, just tell them to shoo, okay? Don't do that because that's not bearing with one another in love, okay? So um, Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. If you're following along in one of those Bibles in the chairs in front of you, this is on page 809. This is how God's word reads. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We're going to continue reading a few verses. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Father, we thank you um, again, as we have done so a few times already. We we thank you for your word. Um, We thank you that we can trust your word. Uh, We can thank you. We thank you that... um, your word tells us about your word, um, that, that your word is sufficient and it, um, and it is complete um, in order for um, the, the man of God or the woman of God um, to, be, to be complete um, so that we would, 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 would be able to, to live the kind of life that you're calling us to live as disciples of Jesus. Um, and so we, we turn to no other place um, but to the pages of the scriptures um, to know what it is that your will is for our lives. Um, and so, Lord, we just submit ourselves to it today. Um, Lord, help us uh, break through um, those, those things within the scriptures that, that may not um, sit right with us um, or those things that, that rub against um, the, 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 maybe the behaviors that we've developed. And so, Lord, we know that because of your spirit within us um, and, and our access to, to the spirit, um, that, that you are able to break through those those hearts of those hearts of stone, um, and to give us hearts that would desire after you. And so, Lord, help us to understand what your word says, um, and and we will submit ourselves to it today in your name. Amen. You may be seated. Thanks for standing. You've been standing for a while. That's a bunch of Baptists don't like doing that, do they? So, thanks for standing with us. Um, Matthew chapter 5, we're primarily going to focus in on the first three verses of Matthew chapter 5. Um, and so before we really kind of get into that, we'll, we'll, we'll get into that here in just a minute. Um, 
here's what Matthew thus far has established for us. Um, it's, this, it's this real simple message that is a matter of life and death for us to understand, and it's this. Jesus is the king. It's what, it's, that's, that's the message, amen? Jesus is the king. And Jesus, here's, here's what, what Matthew's done for us. Jesus is, not any, any theor, uh, Jesus is not any theoretical or imaginary king. <laughs> he's, he's, not, you know, he's not like the weird guy sitting up in his bunker, down in his bunker, thinking he's the king. Um, Jesus is a, is, a, is a real king, and he's a real king over a kingdom. And let's go a little bit deeper. This isn't a theoretical kingdom either. Like, he's not cuckoo in his bunker. Um, he's, he has a real kingdom. Um, that, and, and, um, that, that, and it's not theoretical, it's not imaginary, and he refers to this kingdom as the kingdom of heaven. We see that throughout the opening pages of Matthew's gospel. It's not an imaginary kingdom. Um, it, is, it is actually the realist and the most genuine kingdom that has ever existed and exists today. In fact, it's so genuine this kingdom that Jesus is the king over, so genuine it is that, that all other kingdoms that have ever existed even the ones that exist today are, are but shadows of this kingdom. They're, they're, they're trying to live up to what this kingdom is and they, they can't because they're not sovereign. Jesus is. And so as chapter four wraps up, if, if you, if you kind of look at the end of chapter four, Jesus begins showing us um, the, the non-imaginary, non-theoretical implications of this kingdom because this is... This, he's showing us how he will reign within this kingdom because it says he is proclaiming the gospel in verse 23 of chapter four, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing of every, uh, healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So again, we see here that this kingdom that Jesus is reigning over is a real kingdom with skin on it. There's, there's people within this kingdom with, with skin on it because Jesus is healing people and he's, he's, he's casting demons out. And so a kingdom, this kingdom that Jesus is the king over is a kingdom that is rooted in, in history. Like I'm just trying to, to establish here, this is, a, this is a real kingdom, not imaginary or theoretical. It's a, it's a real kingdom. It's rooted in history and it's, and it's where the lives of real people are completely altered. But here's the important thing as we come to the end of chapter four and into chapter, as we venture into chapter five, in case that we are to think, in case that for whatever reason, we are to think that, that this is primarily the kind of, of earthly kingdom that, that the Jews at the time were expecting and that many of us kind of expect, you know, Jesus to, 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 to dominate, um, we, we would, that, that we would think need to be established for health, wealth, and prosperity. Like Jesus isn't coming to establish a, a kingdom of health, wealth, and prosperity. It's in today's text where Jesus sets some of those things straight. He says, because as crucial of a role, as crucial of a role that his healings and his miracles play, not just to, who, not just to his ministry, but to who he is in his character. I mean, he is a, God is a God who is loving and merciful and is concerned with the, with the afflictions of his people, both physically and spiritually. We're gonna see that. But as crucial as a role that, that these healings and these miracles play, it is not to be understood as his priority in his ministry rather as a testimony to who he says he is. This is what Kevin established for us a few weeks ago, that the miracles and the healings and the, the, the exorcisms that, that Jesus performed of casting, casting demons out, they were, they were there to support who he said he was, that he was the son of God. And so as he performs these miracles, he does it because he is a loving and merciful savior, 
but he, but he primarily does it so that we would know that what he, who he says he is is who he really is. And so what it is that Jesus is after in all of this is our submission to Jesus and his authority. And that's what Matthew is after in his gospel. That's what he's trying to establish for us. This is a king worth trusting. And so as Matthew 4 comes to this close, Jesus has some serious momentum going, right? I mean, if you were, if you were out healing uh, people of their diseases and the crowds were coming to you, um, you would think you've got some serious momentum in ministry going on. He's got some serious momentum. He's teaching in very public and prolific places. It says he's in the synagogues. Um, at the end of at the, or at the at the end of chapter at the end of uh, chapter four, so he's in the synagogues, and so he's 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 teaching in very public places, very prolific places. Um, he's got crowds that are following him. He's healing and he's casting out demons. And yet, what is it that Jesus does? Well, this is what brings us to Matthew chapter five, verses one and two. We're going to read that again. It says, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So one has to wonder why Jesus does what he does here. I, I think it's okay for us to, 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 to evaluate it. At least it would be the honest question of Jesus has all this momentum going, and yet why pause this momentum of effective healing in order to, to start teaching them, right? Why, why, does he, why does he stop what he's doing? Like this isn't how we measure effectiveness today, is it? This, is, this flies in the face of if something works, don't change it. <laughs> Right? If something's working, I mean, if, if we were gonna if we were gonna measure the effectiveness effectiveness of one's ministry, and they're doing something that's effective, our measurements and 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 our 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 uh, metrics would say, don't stop doing what you're doing, keep going. And yet Jesus makes a really significant, intentional, important flip in the way that he's relating. And so, what we're going to see here, church family. And what we're gonna to continue to see is that Jesus, you gotta catch this. Jesus is not one bit concerned with our fanaticism of Jesus. He's not one bit concerned with your hype around Jesus. He's not one bit concerned around our metrics, around what is successful and what's not. And so Jesus is pull, drawing the crowds in and he's saying, here's what I'm concerned with. And so it seems clear from the text, from, from, from the text that we're in and the Beatitudes, it seems clear that Jesus isn't enacting some sort of like universal code or, 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 or some, sort of, some sort of social ethic. He's primarily concerned with, he's got crowds of people around him. We, we know that his disciples are there. We know that at the end of chapter seven, that there's crowds there. But what Jesus is laying out for us is, is what it looks like to follow Jesus. And so there's people here that were astonished by his teaching, but we know that not all of them chose to follow him. Jesus is setting the ground rules for what life looks like within this kingdom, amen? He's, he's setting the ground rules. This is, this is the, the culture of my kingdom, and that's, maybe that's too, too shallow of a word and too, too weak of a word even. Jesus, as the king of a real kingdom, is saying, this is what life will look like within this kingdom, there's no alternate reality within this kingdom. There's no, there's no um, side ethic in this kingdom. The, the ethic of this kingdom, the, the, the rules of this kingdom are what, what I declare and what I say because I'm the king and this is my kingdom is what he's saying in here. And so this teaching, I believe, is, is really geared towards those who would choose to follow him as disciples. So, so you and me, we, we must 
I mean, I, I imagine if you're here this morning, you have a desire to follow Jesus. If you have a desire to follow Jesus, just raise your hand. I think we're about 98%, so <laughs> let's try 100%. We're trying to follow Jesus. Raise your hand if you just, you, I'm trying to follow Jesus, okay. So Jesus' teaching here forces us to, to decide, forces us to decide whether or not we're going to live within this kingdom as disciples of Jesus or if we're going to live as casual observers of it. And I think, I think there's a, maybe a mixed crowd here of people who desire you know, two, two different things. I think there's a group of here that says, yes, we want life in this kingdom. There's another group that says, can you just give us what we, what we, what we came to you for? And so if that is the case, if it's the case that you desire to follow Jesus and obey Jesus, and by the way, we're not talking about like an initial, you know, I know so many of us, we've kind of got this idea about salvation in our minds, like you pray a prayer and you're saved. No, following Jesus is a daily decision that you make. You follow Jesus in obedience every day. And so if that's the case for you, you desire to follow Jesus, then Jesus is telling us the implications up front. Are you in on this kingdom? I'm the king and here's what life in this kingdom is all about. And so let's do one more thing. This is kind of a, this is a planned rabbit trail, but follow me. Deuteronomy 18. If you have a Bible, go there. Deuteronomy 18, a little bit of a rabbit trail, but I think it's really important. So let's acknowledge another prophecy that Christ fulfills here. Um, let's acknowledge that, that Matthew has said, hey, Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham, but let's look at how Jesus connects to another father of the Jewish faith, Moses. So th this one is not quite as, as clearly stated as the, as the ones before with David and Abraham, but it is one nonetheless. It is kind of a, a fulfillment of, of, of who um, who they, they said Jesus would be. And so we've, again, we've seen how Jesus Christ fulfills the blessing promised to Abraham. We see that he's the king promised to David. But Jesus is also meant to be understood as the fulfillment of the prophecy of Moses in Deuteronomy 18. So we're there, we're in Deuteronomy 18. Let's just, let's just read um, verses 15 through 19. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers, it is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up from them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. This is, this is fascinating. This is, this, is, this is beautiful. If you're wondering, well, maybe he's talking about Joshua. Maybe he's talking about Joshua. We talk about in fulfillment that there's oftentimes in prophecy, there's an immediate fulfillment and a, and a future fulfillment, right? So we see that all throughout the book of Isaiah. Um, Isaiah makes a lot of prophecies that are fulfilled immediately, but are also fulfilled in Jesus, ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. This particular passage, Matthew 5, is not a direct fulfillment. Of, I'm, not, I'm not trying to attach, cross-reference this with that. It's not a direct fulfillment, but I think what Matthew's doing in showing us that Jesus ascended the mountain to teach is supposed to bring Moses to our minds. I mean, it, if, if you're familiar with the scriptures, you, you would you'd kind of say, wow, Moses did this kind of thing a lot. He, he went up the mountain to teach the people of God. And, and I'll just tell you this to support that this is Jesus, that Moses is speaking of Jesus. It's the opinion of Philip in John chapter one, verse 45. 
It's Philip's opinion. It's Philip's, it's Philip's recognition that Jesus is the one who Moses spoke of. In fact, more explicitly in Acts chapter three, you have Peter uh, preaching um, and, and, and Peter acknowledges that Jesus is who Moses spoke of. This is an explicit reference to Deuteronomy 18. And then you've got the teaching of Stephen in Acts chapter seven, that Jesus is who Moses spoke of. And it is our understanding today, church, that Jesus is the one who Moses spoke of, that Jesus is a, is, a, is a true and better Moses, one who God has sent to deliver his people from the enslavement of their sin, that Moses is a very important figure, but Jesus is the figure who we are all supposed to get our eyes on. And so let us not miss this. Moses ascends the mountain to give the law to the people of God. Jesus ascends this mountain in order to give the gospel to the people of God. Aren't you glad Jesus ascended that mountain after Moses? That Jesus ascended the mountain to give the gospel. So Jesus is this new and better Moses. So here we are in the Beatitudes. You're like, man, this is three verses. Let's get on, let's get on with it. So the Sermon on the Mount, it begins with this section called the Beatitudes. You've probably, you know, most of us in here have heard of that. If you're not, you know, familiar with the Bible or with church, you've probably also heard of it. But, but this section, the sermon, which is Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7, his sermon covers three chapters. Um, and so it begins with the Beatitudes where Jesus is listing blessings and following up each of them with a particular promise. He's saying, blessed are... For they, in each of them. There's a blessing and here's a promise. And so what Jesus is doing here, he's, he's not so much asking you, this is, a, this is really important. Jesus, as the king of this kingdom, this is gonna be really great on some of us, he's not really asking you to invite him into your life. He's not asking you to invite him into your life. Jesus is calling, is inviting us to come into his life. You see what I'm see what I did there? We've we we kind of, and, and and I don't want to I don't want to like nitpick that too much, but we kind of come to Jesus with Jesus coming to my life. And what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount, he's saying, No, I want you to enter into my kind of life. I want you. So that's a what that needs to do is reorient our understanding of what following Jesus and salvation is. It's not a inviting Jesus into my life. It is a man, King Jesus has invited me into life within his kingdom. That's the way that we should understand this. And so this is what salvation really, I believe, is all about. And so Jesus moves into his teaching in verse three, and this is how he begins. Let's read this. Would somebody read that, verse three, while I get a drink? The king has spoken, not Robbie, but Jesus. Robbie's, <laughs> Robbie's reading what the king said. Most of you have red letters. <laughs> The king has spoken, and it is now right for us, church family, to, to explore and understand what in the world does the king mean by this? Like, this is a, if, if you're not feeling some of the, the, the tension of what Jesus says here, then, then let's, let's, let's help us feel the tension of what he says. And so the, verses 3 through 10, some people consider these like the formal beatitudes, that once you get past 10, that, that Jesus is kind of starting to kind of pull back a little bit. But that the formal Beatitudes, verses three through 10, they're bookended by this promise that theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So you see in verse three, for theirs is, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see in verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus uses the word blessed here 
Did you know there's a, time out. Did you know there's a whole book that, that, that I found that um, is 400 pages that all it's about is dissecting this word blessed? We're not gonna get into all that. I'll give you the book if you want it. But Jesus uses the word blessed here and we're going to try to take a simple approach to understanding what it means and some of us aren't gonna like it. I don't really like it, but this is a simple approach to what it means, happy, happy. But not the kind of happiness that you and I often think of. Not the, not the kind of happiness that you and I are often after in, in our own life. It is a happiness that leads to flourishing and true peace. When Jesus said, blessed are, he is saying that there is, a, there is a, a way to live life that will produce a kind of happiness that produces true peace and satisfaction. And so the, this word that Jesus uses for happiness here, it even has Old Testament roots from the idea of a, of a people who are flourishing, like people who are living life in a, in a, in a way that, that brings satisfaction to themselves and glory to God. And so this can help us understand this word a little bit better and help us not get confused because church, all the ways that we seek to be happy are all those ways something that lead to our flourishing? Maybe, maybe, maybe I wasn't clear on that. This happiness that Jesus talks about is a happiness that leads to flourishing, the distinction between the happiness that Jesus is talking about and the happiness that we often think of is that our, our pursuit of happiness often does not lead to, to, to satisfaction, does it? Man, I've done a lot of things that I thought would make me happy that do not lead to, to my flourishing, the flourishing around me, or the satisfaction that my soul really longs for. And so when Jesus says blessed over the course of this, by the way, the uh, Psalms, there's a lot of, there's a lot of Psalms that if you go back, Psalm 144, blessed is the man, blessed is the man whose God is king, God is Lord. Um, Psalm chapter one, blessed is the man who, who walks not in the, in, the, in the counsel of the ungodly and, and all of that. We preached on that a few, a few months ago. But the ways that you and I seek happiness in our life is not, it, it does not often result in our actual happiness. Jesus is saying here, there is a seeking, there is a, there is a pursuit of something that will lead to a kind of happiness that brings a kind of satisfaction. And, and let me just kind of spoil the ending for you. It may not be in this life, it may be in the next. The full satisfaction that we're experiencing may not happen here, maybe, maybe, maybe to a small degree because our, our hope is in Jesus. But I mean, we're, we're gonna see like, hey, life is just full of mourning. Life is full of, for, for the true disciple of being persecuted in, in different ways. And so happiness in our terms is, is, is often synonymous with our own demise. And Jesus is saying, this happiness that I'm talking about is not synonymous with your demise, but synonymous with your flourishing, synonymous with a satisfaction that your heart longs for. And so what Jesus is listing here is not a checklist for the Christian life um, as, as if we strive for one while neglecting the other. Like, hey, I'm, I'm really good at meekness, but I'm, I'm really bad at being merciful. <laughs> That's not the picture that Jesus is painting here. As if you can pursue one and completely neglect another. Jesus is saying, this is the law of this land. This is, this is how things operate here. And so what Jesus is doing is he's painting this portrait of a kingdom dweller. What is it like to dwell within the kingdom? This is a holistic result of a spirit-filled Jesus follower. 
This is what it looks like to follow Jesus in a spirit-filled way. And so, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In simplest terms, Jesus is saying that the kingdom of heaven only belongs to those who are poor in spirit. That's what the kingdom of God is made up of. If you want admittance into the kingdom of heaven, there is no entry into the kingdom of heaven apart from a poorness of spirit. It's the only kind of person there. It's, it's the, Jesus is the cornerstone and those who are poor in spirit are the bricks of the kingdom of heaven. That's a really bad analogy. But, but only those who are poor in spirit are those who are within the kingdom of heaven. And so before we enter into the fullness of what the kingdom consists of, there's an emptying that must take place, y'all. There is, a, there is an emptying of ourselves that must take place before we enter into the fullness of what this kingdom exists. Who is the kingdom made up of? Only those who are poor in spirit. That's it. So if you're in the kingdom, you are one who is striving for, you are one who is, who is seeking in obedience a poorness of spirit rather than a pompousness of spirit is maybe one way we could put that. Now, I think it should probably go without having to say that this isn't about like a material poverty. This isn't about living, you know, impoverished as far as physical needs. Rather, Jesus is addressing a kind of spiritual poverty here. He's addressing a, and we're gonna get to, Jesus just perfectly explains this in just a minute. Now, we do know, based on Jesus' teachings, and the teachings of, of the, the rest of scriptures, material riches may certainly serve as a hurdle in acknowledging our need for a savior, right? We're aware of that, that material riches, that you know, living a, 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 just like a, like a life of, of everything we have, it, it is able to serve as a hurdle to, to following Jesus because a lot of times those who are living a, a life of plenty, man, like what do they need, Right? And so we see Jesus is going to develop that. He's going to, de- he's going to develop this idea that material riches may certainly serve as a hurdle. But what Jesus is addressing here is not a material poverty, but a poorness of our spirit. That's why he adds this. That's why Jesus wants to make sure, because here's the deal. There are both rich people and poor people likely in this crowd that Jesus is talking to. So he's making sure that we know this is a poorness of spirit. Now, the word that Jesus uses here is really important to understand too. Because in the Old Testament, there's really kind of two words that explain poorness, two concepts of poorness. One is a poorness that, that, that you're able to kind of work, kind of, you're able to work your way out of, that you're able to, to go to work and, and, and provide for yourself. The poorness that Jesus is speaking of here in spirit, by the way, is a poorness, of, a, a poorness that, you are, that you are completely stuck in that you can't work your way out of this poorness of spirit that he's talking about. One that, one that you, man, you go to, you go to, to play, there, there's not a, you're not holding up a sign that says we'll work for food. If we want to spiritualize that, what Jesus is making sure we know is that we're not holding up a sign saying we'll work for salvation. This is not the kind of, of work that we're able to just pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and get better. The poorness of spirit that Jesus is talking about, man, is a, is a, think this, think down on my knees. Think, the, think the, the, the depths of poverty maybe that you've ever seen and try to apply that to a spiritual need that Jesus is saying it is the kingdom of heaven is for those who are in that place. 
and who acknowledge that they're in this place. And so one, one way we might understand this is, is a humility. I feel like humility is, obviously it's a, it's a scriptural word, it's a biblical word that we need to pursue and we need to be after. But, it can, but, but we need to just understand that, that, that this, is a, this is a, not humility just merely as some virtue, like, man, yeah, man, he's a humble person. Like, I'm pretty humble, right? Like, it's not just a, a humble, like, no, what it, what it is, what Jesus is saying is that this is an utter dependence upon God, that we would utterly depend upon him. And so this isn't only to be understood as our admittance fee into the kingdom. Remember, like I said, this poorness of spirit is something I believe the true disciple to be ever growing in. Hey, Isaiah, would you roll that marker board up here? We're gonna do something a little bit different. So as we, as we think about this poorness of spirit, I'm gonna put it up here. If you, you can grab one side. Thanks. So as we, as we think about, um, you're like, what are you doing? You don't ever do stuff like this. So as we think about this idea of an ever-growing dependence upon God, rather than like an admittance fee, like, hey, here's my, here's my poorness of spirit ticket. Now that I'm in, like, how do I work my way to the top? By the way, his disciples kind of started having that conversation later, remember? Which, you know, can I sit at your right hand? Can I, can I sit at your right hand? You know, I think one of, one of their moms may have told, you know, asked Jesus for, for their baby boy, but um, they kind of get into this conversation. They, they, they hear this sermon, or this sermon is, is, is going around at least. I, don't, I can't remember which of those disciples that it was saying, Father, can we, or Jesus, can we sit at, at the Father's right hand? Once they're in, they kind of start jockeying for place, don't they? They're like, I've, I've, I've given my poor of spirit admittance ticket, and now it's just all about getting at the front of the line. Rather, what we need to think of this poorness of spirit is something that like we're, we're practicing today. We're, we're exhibiting each and every day that we wake up and we are completely and utterly dependent and reliant upon the spirit of God to produce in us what we can't produce in ourselves. Remember this poorness that we talked about. It's not a poorness that we work our way into. It is a, it is a desperate kind of poverty that we have that we can do nothing. And so I think there's a visual that is really helpful to con- for us to consider as, as lifelong learners and lovers of Jesus. And, and, it's, and it's called, and I, even, I have more of this fancy coat so I can put these markers in it. So <laughs> one, one way that's helped me understand this is, is what's called the gospel grid. Some of you have seen this before. Sorry if you can't see. I'll try to, try to get around. It's the gospel grid. And so here, here we are. That's our life. Let's just say we, we, have a, we, we do, we have a moment. And by the way, we, we, value, we value and we teach that there is a moment in your life where you must decide to follow Jesus. Like you kind of hear us dogging on like the, the, the plan of salvation, you hear me, but I, but I do believe and there is a decisive moment in your life where you place your trust in Jesus for the first time and he becomes the king of your life. And you say, Jesus, I want life within your kingdom. So, so let's just say that's that moment. Well, in our life, hopefully, we, we kind of have a, a growing awareness of God's holiness, right? If we're waking up every day dependent and reliant upon God and not, not relying on our own strength or, 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 or what we can produce or what we can work our way into, 
what we're going to grow in is a, is a awareness that God is really holy. I, I believe the holiness of God more today than I did when I placed my trust in him initially. Because that's the way that disciples, they grow. They walk with Jesus. They, they follow Jesus imperfectly. But here's what also tends to happen as you grow more and more aware of the holiness of God. You grow more and more aware of what? Your own sin. You grow more and more aware of your own sin. Like God is really holy and I am really sinful. And so what would make sense in most of our minds is, okay, let's try to figure out a way to, you know, start climbing this mountain, right? It's kind of the way that some of us act. Like I'm going to, I'm going to, you, 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 maybe, maybe you take what Jesus commands and, and you do it not as, not as a way of pursuing a relationship with him, but pursuing working your way out of it. Like, hey God, if I, we're going to see in just a minute in Luke 18, kind of what this looks like. But no, this isn't, this isn't, this isn't, the thing. This is, this is working our way out of, out of this. The beautiful thing, though, is as we grow more and more aware of God's holiness and more and more aware of our own sin, what begins to happen? Man, the cross just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. You see that? Is, and so I just I have to ask you, is is the cross of Jesus, is the gospel sweeter to you now than it was 10 years ago? Is it sweeter to you now? Like, because I'll tell you, I'll tell you this, I, I, I was not aware of the depth of my sin when I gave my life to Jesus at 14. I knew that I was a sinner, but I was not aware of the depth of my sin. I was, I was back here. I knew, okay, I'm a sinner. You know, I, I believe that. But, but hey, you start throwing kids in the mix and you're gonna find out real fast how sinful of a person you are, right? You're, you start thinking things that you, you used to watch true crime documentaries and you know, like demonize those people. And you're like, hold up, I'm, I'm right there. But, but as, we, as we walk with Jesus as disciples, we, what's going to happen is we are going to become more in awe and more aware of the holiness of God. And in that space, we don't work our way up. The cross just becomes that much sweeter, the gospel. That's the, that's the, the gospel of Jesus. And so I think this, there's a lot of things that we could kind of message from this. But what I want, what I want us to see is that, is that this simply helps remind us that repentance and dependence and humility upon God is something that we grow deeper into rather than something we grow beyond right? I mean, John Piper says, I, I thought I'd be more sanctified by now. <laughs> and, and we do not grow beyond the grace of God, ever. We grow more deeply into it. And so Jesus here, I, I, think, I think what he's trying to help us understand is that blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the ever-growing poor in spirit, and the one continually poor in spirit, so look at let's 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 kind of wrap this thing up by looking at the the picture that the scriptures themselves paint of this person. So fl- flip with me to the book of Isaiah. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter fifty-seven and Isaiah uh, sixty-six. These are some really powerful verses to understand God's God's heart on what we're discussing here. 
So God's heart towards the poor in spirit. This is what Isaiah 57, verse 15 says. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Let's not miss our place in that verse. Not being poor in spirit, and, and none of us would actually say this with our, with our mouths, but, but let, me, let me tell you what poor in spirit is not, thinking that you are the one who is high and lifted up and the one who inhabits eternity. No, you are the lowly and the contrite that God is seeking to inhabit. In fact, that's what, that's what Isaiah 66 says. Man, this is good. Isaiah 66, verses one and two. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to me, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Isn't that Mind that's intended to blow your mind. Isaiah writes this, and the Lord speaks this so that we would know. Jesus says, Heaven's my throne, the earth is my footstool. Like I re- like I'm resting my foot on this thing right here. I could I could snap it. I could push this. I won't try it because I don't want to embarrass myself. I could snap this thing. And and God's saying, the earth. Is, is my footstool. Yet who I choose to inhabit are the, the lives of those who are humble and lowly in spirit and contrite. Those who are poor, Jesus is reinforcing this. Turn with me to Luke chapter 18. Jesus really wants us to get this, y'all. He really wants us to understand this, 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 this reality of being poor in spirit, so much that he tells a parable about it, so much that he, he says, you're not getting it. <laughs> let, me help you make, let me help this make sense. Let's read this. Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. I, I think we're, we're intended to, to relate with one of these people. Is, is there one? I, I'm not, like I promised you last week, we kind of laid some ground rules for the Sermon on the Mount. I will not be your Holy Spirit. I will not attempt to be the Holy Spirit in your life. 
But I think that we are maybe to, to look at this and, and relate with, with, with someone here. And my question for you is who do you relate with in this? Do you relate with the one? Man, I thank God I'm not like that person. The, the, here's the truth. Just so I can kind of let some of the air out. Yes, we relate with that person quite a bit, don't we? We do. I, this, is, this is me. This is, where, this is where the gospel comes in, y'all. Because the, 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 the beatitudinal man that Jesus is explaining ultimately is, is about Jesus himself. He's the one who exhibits and obeys and, and, and practices these things perfectly. And like we said last week, however, that's no excuse for us to not seek these things. It's no excuse for us to not pursue and to live in obedience to Jesus, the king. But, but who do we more often relate with in this parable? The tax collector or the, or the Pharisee? What posture do we come before the Lord? Lord, I've done this. You owe me this. I've done this. This is what I expect. Can I just say that's actually a way that, that many read the Beatitudes, I'm poor in spirit, you tell me I get the kingdom of heaven. I mourn, you tell me that I'm gonna be comforted. So if this, then that. But no, Jesus is, is not so much saying, do this and this is what you're, you're owed or this is what you deserve. And so this poorness of spirit that Jesus is, 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 is trying to develop for us, again, it's not about material poverty, but it's not about a false humility. It's not about a gloominess. And Jesus is gonna address that. It's not about a woe is me. It is, about a, it is about a posture before the Lord who reigns in heaven and whose earth is his footstool is a posture before the Lord, a posture of repentance, a posture of unworthiness, ultimately a posture that, that all kingdom citizens bear, a posture that, that is present within us imperfectly. But thank God that as I grow more and more aware of my own inability to achieve this and grow more and more aware of the holiness of God, that the gospel never goes away. That the gospel says, hey, Jesus fills this gap. Whatever gap is between what you say and what you do is as a, as a child of God, if you are pursuing to obey him, has been filled by Jesus and filled by what he does. And so I, I just wrap up with this, this one verse of a favorite old hymn. This is the posture that Jesus is seeking. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Rock of ages. Father, I just pray this morning that you would, you would help us to assume this posture that you're, you're, that you're calling us to, um, that you yourself exhibit, um, that you yourself fulfill in your son Jesus perfectly, um, but one that you are calling those who would desire to, to live a, a life of following Jesus, a, a posture that you would call us to, to assume ourselves. And so, Lord, one of the most powerful ways that you have practically given your church to assume this posture is by coming to the table, by coming empty-handed. And this is exactly, I, I believe, what may, may we be reminded each week as we come to the table 
that you have given your life, you've give, you have shed your blood, and you have you've given your body so that we may know you, but, but may we also connect this with the reality that I come to you empty-handed, that I come completely helpless, that even the strength that, that it requires for me to walk to this spot is strength that you have given me. And so, Lord, help us to, to assume this posture, Lord, it feels it feels like the it feels like the importance of this for our time um, in in our in our world today. It feels like it's never been more crucial. We know that this is the way that you have always called believers to behave and to live and to trust you. But Lord, it, it feels like it just feels like because of our own limitations. And so help us here. It feels like the stakes are high. And so help us to be to be people. Um, who, who would seek after true satisfaction and happiness because of what Jesus Christ has accomplished for us in assuming a posture of humility and brokenness and poorness of spirit that nothing in my hand I bring simply to the cross I cling. We pray these things in the powerful name of your son Jesus, amen.